open up to the book of Galatians. We're in chapter 2 tonight. We're going to be at the end of the section that we read last week. Last week was a big 14, well, big for us, right? 14 verse section. And tonight we're going to hit just uh, four verses uh, in order to get some more clarity around this thing that the Bible calls the gospel. This thing that we exist to understand, worship God for, and then proclaim to the nations and to our neighbors that Jesus Christ is God become flesh to solve the great problem and the chief problem and the biggest problem of all humankind, which is that we are lost in sin, rebels against God, enemies of his law, and condemned under his justice, but that Jesus has solved that issue for us by becoming sin for us on the cross. That is that he absorbed our own sin into his account, not his person, not his nature, not his behavior. He did not become a sinner, but that he was reckoned and accounted as a sinner by God the Father so that he could die a sinner's death and be crushed under a sinner's punishment. Thus that three days later, in his rising gloriously and triumphantly from the grave, God could say that a great exchange has taken place. The sin of mankind, the sin of all those who would ever trust in him, were transferred to Jesus and fully paid for. And the righteousness needed to bring all of those sinners to heaven for eternity was earned by Jesus and is given to people by faith alone. That is the good news of the gospel. For anybody, anybody that is here today and not yet saved, you must not work for your salvation. You need not obey God to get salvation. You're not being asked to give or do or earn anything you're being offered the free gift of god which is unending glorious life if you just receive jesus as your savior that's the good news of the gospel that message so inflamed paul's heart when he met jesus face to face after jesus had gone back up to heaven he came back down met paul face to face and it so inflamed his heart and jesus called paul to go and be a preacher of this message so for, for years, for decades, Paul traveled the known world and spread that message to all people of all backgrounds in every city that he could possibly find. And he received all kinds of backlash and backlashes, all kind of backlash as, it, as people sort of uh, uh, lashed back towards him, but also lashes on his back as he was whipped and beaten with rods and beat up and left for dead and stoned with rocks and thrown off of ships and all of this kind of thing. Paul lived because Jesus had saved him. Paul lived to tell other people that Jesus could save them. And then Paul eventually died for preaching this message so unapologetically, so unendingly, and so zealously. But in the middle of his life, we get this period, this scene that we're going to look at today in Galatians 2 verses 11 to 14. And this becomes one of, the, one of the biggest and most dramatic scenes of the New Testament. It only gets this little snippet here. We don't hear of it anywhere else. But it's one of the most dramatic scenes if you were in the room at the time. And it is the scene where Peter the Apostle, Jesus' right-hand guy who had foot and mouth disease, spoke out of turn, got called Satan once by Jesus because he was such a blubbering idiot when he didn't rely on God's revelation to guide him. When he rushed to it, he made stupid mistakes. I resonate with that guy. Anyway, he, Jesus, head apostle in that sense, the preacher on Pentecost, the, the one who God gave visions and proclamation to, he... He became cowardly and started acting in fear, and Paul had to correct him. So we're going to look at this in, in Galatians chapter 2, verse 11 to 14. This is yet another scene where the drama was high, the stakes were even higher, the, 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 the significance was enormous, but the gospel triumphed once again. And because of what happened in this scene, the gospel went on to continue to triumph in the salvation of many souls. Galatians chapter 2, verse 11 says this, but when Cephas came to Antioch, Cephas is Peter's uh, Greek name. Sometimes he's called Simon because that was his birth name. Jesus called him Peter because that means the rock. And then uh, 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 his Greek name for that was Cephas. So you hear him called all sorts of things across the New Testament. When Cephas came to Antioch, that's Paul's uh, stomping grounds, his home sending church. I opposed him to his face. All right, there's his welcoming party. Because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, that is, up from Jerusalem, he was eating with the Gentiles. Very significant phrase. Lock that in your mind. Eating with the Gentiles. But 
When they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? May God bless the reading of his own inerrant, powerful, always relevant and timely word in our midst this evening. Amen. Amen. This happened probably about 48 or so AD. If we can go just a couple of years back from this scene, back to a scene that happened in Peter's own life between him as he was down in the area of Joppa and then as he moved over to Caesarea. This happens for us in Acts chapter 10 and 11. Actually, can you go there? Acts chapter 10. So, so <laughs> about 48 AD or so, Paul comes back to Antioch church after his first mission trip. He sees Peter there acting this way. That's when the showdown happens. But in order to make sense of this scene and to understand why it holds such significance in the New Testament... We need to go back to Acts chapter 10. Remember, before, while you're finding your place in Acts chapter 10, we remember that the reason Paul starts out for two whole chapters, well, well, one and a half chapters, next week he starts getting into theology. But the reason Paul starts his whole book with a chapter and a half of history and, and why he's separate to the Jerusalem apostles, but they do agree, but he's not under their leadership, and Peter's not his boss. In fact, one time he fought Peter in a cage match in Antioch, and he won. Uh, he, the reason he tells us all of this detail is because the heretics that had snuck out along where Paul had done ministry and church planting, they got to those Gentile churches and said, you know what, Paul's not sent from God, Peter sent him, Peter's the boss of Paul. Also, Peter disagrees with Paul. They've got different Gospels. Also, Peter says, we say, we all agree, other than Paul, you need to get circumcised so that you can become a Jew under Moses' uh, uh, household and then you can receive Jesus, who was the Jewish Messiah. So here in today's passage, we're going to understand the, the background history that led to this showground in chapter 2, verse 11, that Paul talks about between him and Peter. So back in Acts chapter 10, basically we've got this. Peter is resting. He's having a bit of a sabbatical. He had done most of his ministry in the prior chapters in, in Jerusalem, the big city of, 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 of Israel. But as the, the revival swept and as people kept getting saved closer to the coast, he went out there and he was helping and he had to rebuke some false converts and had to help organize the church as it was growing and thriving and spreading. He did preaching, discipline, sacraments, all the stuff that an elder and a pastor does. But one day he's, he's having a rest. He's in Joppa in the house of a tanner, um, not that he gets tanned, uh, uh, like your weird uncle from Byron Bay, uh, but that he would tan hides and make leather with them. And he's staying in that guy's house, and he's up on the roof in the sun, and he's praying to God, and a, a vision is given to him. It says that he falls into a trance. You'll see it in Acts chapter 10. And as he's in this trance, God brings down this, this enormous sheet with unclean animals in it with things like reptiles and, and unclean food and animals you're not supposed to eat under Moses' old covenant law. The ceremonial law commanded that these not be eaten because this is what the Gentiles eat, the pagans eat, and they are unclean. Therefore, to touch them, to eat them in that manner, or to even sacrifice them, don't do that. That is to make you unclean before God. You have to go through washings before you can come again and among the, 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 the people of God. So verse 13 and 14 tell us that the voice comes to Peter and says, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. Does Jesus want us to be vegans? Thank you. Back to the text. Rise, Peter, kill and eat. Now here we go. Here's, here's where the, the mind of Peter starts going into overdrive and the gears start clunking and, 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 and maybe the, the atheists are over in the corner standing up saying, see, told you the Bible has contradictions. And here's Peter. He's standing up and, and he knows how many times he got it wrong with Jesus when he's back on earth. And he's nervous. Whenever Jesus asks Peter something in a vision, he gets nervous because he's probably going to stuff it up. And God tells him through the voice of Jesus, kill these animals and eat them. 
And Peter goes, this is an easy one. I know the answer to this one. No. God, you're wrong. Yes, I got it. That's what Peter's thinking. I know my law. I know the old covenant. Because this would be a contradiction. If God commanded, do not eat unclean animals, and then he commands me, eat those unclean animals. Is that what's happening? No. In the old covenant, God commanded, do not eat unclean animals, because I called them unclean. Now God's saying, eat these animals, because they're not unclean, because I say so. At no point did God command him to eat unclean animals. He commanded him to eat animals now declared clean, which prior were declared unclean. So, so here's the dilemma. I'm just trying to help us have a little bit of mercy with Peter. As he's just up there stressing, he's sweating beads. He has, he, he's very confused. He has no Jesus. That's never the right thing to say. But, I mean, it, it's scripture, right? It's my vision compared to scripture. I'm going to go with scripture. And so it goes on. But the, in verse 15, uh, sorry, in verse 14, Peter said, By no means, Lord, I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, saying, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and then the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, if you're Peter, and you've just caught yourself saying th the same thing three times in a row, that's bringing up some PTSD for you. Because remember when he denied Jesus? I don't know him. I don't know him. I don't know him. And then the rooster crows. And he goes, ah. And then later on, Jesus is talking. He goes, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And he sort of rehearses those three statements because it was so significant. And now he just argued with Jesus and told Jesus he was wrong three times. And surely, maybe as the sheep was going up, he heard a rooster crow. Well, that was just his, his PTSD coming out. He's getting shell-struck. No, wait, 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 let me do it again. I don't know what happened. But here he was. He was so confused. God just told him to eat what he thought was illegal food. And God kept correcting him, saying, it's not unclean or common anymore. Stop calling unclean what I, by commanding you to eat them, have called clean. This brings into our minds, so that we don't get confused in terms of the Bible contradicting itself, this brings into our mind the important threefold division of the Old Testament law. And it's very simple to understand. This, this deals with a lot of arguments you get about mixed fabrics and eating shellfish and stuff like that as you're talking to unbelievers or atheists. And the reality is that the Old Covenant law was really not neatly divided into three sections so much as having three main themes, though in the book of Exodus they are divided up quite neatly. And the idea is this, that there is the moral law which come out of God's eternal heart. They are wrong because God hates them. They are always right because God loves them. They, they simply reflect God himself. These are not temporary. These are not covenantal, these are eternal, moral, the very foundations of righteousness. This is really, if we were to, to simplify it, they are annexed for us in the Ten Commandments. Then there is also the judicial laws or the civil laws which governed how Israel was to behave as a nation. And then there were the ceremonial laws which governed how they were to approach God through the temple under the Levites according to the commands of Moses with the sacrifices. That's ceremonial. Now, the New Covenant shows to us that the judicial laws are done away with, and we now just kind of apply them with some wisdom to the functioning of the church, because we are a spiritual nation, not an ethnic, geopolitical nation anymore. And then the ceremonial laws have passed away and been abolished because Jesus fulfilled them. We don't need priests because he's our priest and makes us all priests. We don't need to bring lambs because he was our lamb and has abolished lamb sacrifices. We don't need a temple. He's our temple and he's building a spiritual temple. Do you see? So, so the only thing that really from the old covenant carries on for all people, for all times, of all races and all Gentiles is really the, the, the seed behind the Ten Commandments, the moral law. So the question comes up. Before God told Moses these foods are unclean, were they unclean? The answer is no. Unless we find somewhere else in scripture where God had hinted or told them that these foods were unclean, unless God had told them that, without a law there can be no sin or transgression, Paul says in Romans chapter 4 and chapter 2. So, so this is very simple. Without, since they, it wasn't a sin to eat those foods until God said that they were now unclean because he was making a nation called Israel, 
Now that God was finished working solely with a nation and was now working through the Great Commission to all nations through the church, and now that he was relegating that ceremonial and civil law to history, now the question became, it's easy for us, I mean, we're Gentiles in 2024. But can you imagine being Peter, the Jew, raised under Judaism back in AD 47 or so, sitting on that rooftop praying, and God tells him, eat the food you've always known to be not just illegal, but also disgusting. Like for us, it's, it's snails on pizza. Or, or, or the, the, the Philippines have this, uh, uh, this delicacy, which is a, a half-grown duck fetus, then boiled, half soft, half hard, that you gulp back in one whole... T- yeah, the gag is correct. So, it's, so that's the feeling Peter has. It's not just the law says no... It's also, I'm repulsed by this. And yet here he is thinking about it. He's, he's sitting there and he's considering what this vision could possibly mean. And, and we know that in the first instance, what this does mean is what Jesus has already said back in Mark chapter 7, which is that nothing that goes into your body and then is excreted later has the possibility of making you spiritually unclean. It's not actually what the law was supposed to be saying. Jesus was in the debate with the Pharisees about this. Why, why don't your disciples clean their cups and wash their foods the way the, 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 the scribes told us to do it? And Jesus says, you are so wrong. You don't even understand mere biology. It goes in, it comes out later. And, and Mark says in his little parentheses, he says, by saying this, this is Mark 7 verse 19, thus he declared all foods clean. There's no unclean foods for the Christian now, no matter your ethnicity. There may be things that are dumb to eat, but not spiritually unclean. We can just say that. And, and, but not, this, this was not just a vision about food, though. It goes on. As Peter was trying to understand what in the world this vision meant, he's then told in Acts 10, uh, uh, a, the Spirit tells him, people are looking for you, they're about to knock on your front door, go with them, even though it will look really shady, go with them. I have a task for you to do. And then he hears a knock downstairs. He goes down and he says, I'm the guy you're looking for. And these people say, great, an angel visited our boss and told him to send for you at this house and so that you would come and tell us something very important. Peter says, this sounds great. An angel said so. The spirit told me. Jesus spoke to me through the sheet. This is all lining up perfectly. And they say, our master is, uh, is Cornelius, a Roman centurion in the army. Okay, now Peter starts cringing a little bit because that's a whole bunch of layers of unclean. He's a Gentile, and even though he worships God and loves God and does things according to the law as much as he can, he's still a Gentile. He's uncircumcised, so him and his whole household are unclean. And then I'm going to go to his house, which you're not supposed to do. I'm going to eat with them, maybe. They're going to ask me to eat, and they're going to offer me some, some, some bacon cupcakes. I can't do that. I'm a Jew, not allowed to. And what's going to happen? All, all he knows is to go. So God was like systematically knocking down all of the walls of his own resistance. And then eventually in verse 28, verse 29, he says to them, he's just super honest with this Peter. He doesn't even hold back. He just says, so he comes to Cornelius' house. They travel for a day and a half. He comes to the house. They swing open the doors. He comes inside and there's a whole bunch of Gentiles. Cornelius' Greek aunties and Italian cousins, they're all in the living room, they're all sitting here, and Peter's sort of, his conscience is wounded because they're unclean, I'm clean. He comes in and he says to them, verse 28 and 29, he says, to be really honest, <laughs> you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of any other nation. Judaism of that time held that you as a Jew were allowed to be hospitable to a Gentile. That was love. You were to bring them in, feed them, send them on their way, allow them to stay if they needed. But you were never to receive hospitality from a Gentile. You couldn't go past the threshold of their house. You could not sit at their table. You were not allowed to touch their bowls and cups and saucers. They had a whole chapter in books regarding the laws of the crockery. And then... And then he was gonna, uh, 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 sitting here and he sees food start getting served up the back. He's very nervous about the law. He's saying, you all need to be very well aware this is illegal according to my own customs. Halfway through verse 28. But 
God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. For when I was sent for, I came without objection. So here's Peter saying, this is weird to me. When an angel spoke to you, Jesus and the Holy Spirit spoke to me. And I've realized this day and a half that I've been traveling and praying, I know what the vision meant. Not only is the food now clean for anybody, but people of all colors, stripes, bloodlines, and ethnicities, and nations, they are all clean as far as the gospel is concerned. That's what Peter starts realizing. So what does he do? He starts preaching the gospel. It's a threefold meaning of this vision. Food is fine to eat. No one is unclean or common anymore. Therefore, all have equal access to the gospel. Peter needs to take it to them. That's what he does. He starts preaching. He keeps on using all of this universal language with them. Like, Jesus is Lord of all. He, he received all who came. He went through all the area. Like, he keeps on emphasizing in his gospel presentation that this Jesus came for everybody. And then he says in verse uh, 43, he says, To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Now, what did he leave out? He didn't mention Israel. He didn't say you have to be Jewish. He didn't say you have to be circumcised. Maybe he even have to swallow the frog in his throat as he coughed that out and said, everyone who believes has forgiveness in his name. Anyone. Does he really believe that? Is he struggling to believe that? Or is he proclaiming it in absolute confidence? We don't know. I think it's somewhere in the middle because the next thing that happens starts surprising Peter. Verse 44 to 48 says this, while Peter was still saying these things, so God, God can see that he's struggling to believe what he's preaching. This whole sermon that he preaches is just like revelation on the go. He starts to goes, oh, Jesus was Lord of all. And he received everybody that came to him. And everyone who receives him will be, uh, calls on his name will receive forgiveness. And then while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit kind of helped out. He fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed. So here's the Jews who had lived through Pentecost and received the Spirit. They're sort of sitting over on the side listening to the sermon. And they're looking at what's happening in front of them as the Holy Spirit falls on the Gentiles before any of them are circumcised. And they're amazed. This is what happened to us. I thought this was special for us. I thought this was our thing. And here's God sharing it with the unclean, uncircumcised Gentiles. Look what it says. Because, halfway through verse 45, they were amazed. Because the gift of the Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. And then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have no, nothing less, no condition, no qualification on the end of they received the spirit, but 10% was sliced off. No, no, they were entirely filled with the spirit just as we have. And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. This is huge. He has gone from starting saying, I really shouldn't be here among you unclean folk to then preaching the gospel to them, seeing the Holy Spirit fall on them, baptizing them, adding them to the church, and then agreeing to stay in their house many days and eat their food. This is explosive. Peter's entire paradigm has shifted, and now he understands there is no distinction between Jew and Gentile in the kingdom of Christ. There should be no partiality to one or the other. No Judaism whatsoever is required for somebody to come to Jesus Christ. This is enormous. And then look at what chapter 11 starts out with. <coughs> this is the usual pattern of the New Testament. Then, then the circumcision party found out. So 11 starts out like this. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea... They heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went back up to Jerusalem, Jerusalem's south on the map, but it's high on a mountain. So they always say you go up to Jerusalem. He went back up to Jerusalem. 
uh, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to the uncircumcised men and ate with them. This is an explosive no-no. And then, and then, you know, you can see they're like trying not to touch him. They're trying to get as close to him as they can without touching him because, because he's now unclean. He went into their house. It's enormous. And he ate with them. He's got pork oil in his blood now. He's got unclean swine blood. He's got unduly uh, bled meat running through his gut. This is enormous for the circumcision, pharisaical, Christian sort of uh, denomination. They cannot handle it. And the thing that ticked them off so much was that they received the word because of you, Peter. Like you told them the secret that the Messiah came to die for sins. Now there, not just now, they're going to be in heaven, Peter. How do we get away from them there? You've stuffed this whole thing up for us, Peter. And this came, now, but then verse 4 says, uh, uh, but Peter began and explained it to them. So you can see him go, guys, I get it. I understand. I agreed with you about four days ago. But I tell you what, I was praying and he tells them about the vision and the blanket and the spirit's voice and then the angel's message to Cornelius and then the, 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 the divine appointment with the messengers and then going back to the house and then preaching the gospel and seeing the Holy Spirit fall. They spoke in tongues, they extolled God, they baptized them, they understood the gospel he, and then he stayed and ate with them. And he's like, at the end of all that, what was I supposed to do? He says in verse 15, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as us at the beginning. He's begging with them, recognize what this means. Just as on us at the beginning, verse 17. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? It would have been great if Peter tattooed that on his arm. Who am I to stand in God's way? Because that mindset fails him later on in his life. But he says, who was I to stand in? He gave them the spirit. And what, I'm not supposed to shake their hand or eat their dessert? Really? Be because they're unclean? Clean enough for the Holy Spirit, but not clean enough for me. Is that the logic? And he's helping them see how, how like, I understand how enormously strange this is, but God approved them. Verse 18, when they heard these things, the brothers fell silent and they glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. This is an amazing thing. This, you can sort of see the whole, the whole paradigm of the Jerusalem church start changing as they realize this only, this is not a Jewish only in-house Messiah, Jesus, gospel and salvation. This is, this is global. This thing's really going to take off. This has no boundaries, no borders, and gent and this is what just they, they they struggle so much to get through their heads. You don't have to be uncircumcised to be saved, and that was never understood before in the book of Acts. Some of you might say that that's not true. A Gentile back in Acts chapter 8 heard the gospel, got saved, got baptized, and added to the church by Philip. Do you remember that story? Philip was, was uh, zipped out to the side of the road. He saw the Ethiopian coming by and he preached him the gospel. Gentile, probably black in skin, not an Israelite, from Africa. He told him the gospel, got baptized and sent him back. Now, <laughs> there is one, it's difficult to say this, there is one mitigating factor in the eunuch situation that makes him insufficient to answer the circumcision question. Are you catching me? Okay. <laughs> Yes, technically, an uncircumcised Gentile had also been saved and received the Spirit before. But it, would be, it just wouldn't hold up in court that this guy counted as uncircumcised. Do you know what a eunuch is? Right? He's a eunuch from birth. He was chopped off at birth to serve their gods and then somehow added to the Jerusalem sort of religion. And, and, and now, can you, can you imagine the court? And one, one guy over here, Paul, is saying, just as the Ethiopian was saved, the Gentile, uncircumcised, so we must now preach the gospel to the uncircumcised. And, but maybe some of the circumcision party stand up and say, well, Your Honor, this guy was extra circumcised. This guy was so Jewish. And, and it would be hard then to sort of argue the other way. So, so yes, 
a Gentile non-Jew had been saved and received the Spirit. But in a very strange act of providence on God's part, it just couldn't answer the question. <laughs> they, they needed Cornelius and his whole household to hear the gospel and be saved, not one of them having entered into circumcision to answer this question. And here they go, wow, Moses was faithful. Moses gave law. Moses was a prophet. But something about him, in fact, everything about him is subordinate to Jesus because Jesus just threw out all those law codes that we thought were eternal. This is an explosive paradigm shift for them. The mountain of Sinai, the Levitical priesthood, temple worship, holy days, Sabbaths and festivals, food laws and ceremonial clean and uncleanness matters nothing whatsoever in the church. For that first generation of Jews, continuing to do them was no sin. It was their culture that God had imbibed and given to them by revelation. But as far as re requirement to enter into the church, it counted for nothing. And this just blew their mind. The effect of this on Peter was enormous. Not only did this mean that the Gentiles started being able to hear the gospel, get converted, add it to the church, and not having to obey the food laws of Israel, but even the apostle Peter starts acting and living less stringently and less in accord with the old covenant requirements and the Judaistic traditions of his day. So not long after, uh, you're in chapter 10, and we looked at chapter 11 where he explained all of this to his, uh, to his, to his uh, uh, Jewish people, uh, Jewish Christians back in Jerusalem. By the end of the chapter, Paul comes down to Jerusalem, which is a meeting we spoke about back in chapter 1, uh, uh, sorry, back in the beginning of chapter 2 of Galatians, Paul comes down to, to Jerusalem, him and Peter meet for a, little, for, for, for a short while, and they talk and they agree on all of this. And they came to a perfect agreement on the gospel, on the no requirement for circumcision. Remember last week we said Paul took Titus, an uncircumcised Greek, down to Jerusalem, and Peter and the other apostles made no requirement to circumcise him because they understood the vision that God gave to Peter. And then... According to Paul, Peter lived like a Gentile. Look at this in verse 14. Go back to Galatians chapter 2. Verse 14, Paul says, inspired by the Spirit, he says to Peter, you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile. It's all sorts of church scholars that try and come in and say, well, of course, it wasn't required for the Gentiles, but it, it really was important that the Jews kept on doing it and there's elements of it that still hold over. And, and, and it really is a sign of holiness. If you, do, you don't need to. But if you want to be extra spiritual, you do keep the, the, the Jewish festivals. You, you do uh, 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 maintain those food laws. It's not required for salvation, of course. But it's still what holy people sh should really want. I mean, if you love Jesus. Paul says that Peter lived like a Gentile. This means this. I'm, it'll sound like a provocative statement. I'll explain it. It's very common sense. Peter entirely rejected his Judaism. Completely. Because Judaism does not refer to Old Covenant religion taught through Moses. Judaism is the traditional scribal teachings, the Midrash, the, the, the Talmud, and all of that stuff that was piled up on top of the Old Covenant law. Traditions on foods, the extra laws on Gentiles' foods, Sabbath laws. That's the stuff that you constantly see Jesus rub up against the Pharisees and the scribes in his day and buck them off and say, you're making void the commands of God for your useless, weightless, pathetic traditions of men. Get out of it. Stop doing it. It holds no holiness whatsoever. And Jesus intentionally stuck their nose in it by doing stuff with his disciples in front of them that they thought was sin. So as far as Judaism goes, Judaism, in that sense, the, 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 the polluted Old Covenant law and the, the added to Old Covenant system and the perverse system of laws and works righteousness that, that thrived in first century Israel and, and is still kind of in play today. That Judaism, at its essence and its heart, is to distinguish between Gentile and Jew. In that sense, Peter says, 
even though I now honor Moses, even though I now obey the law that I grew up obeying, even though now I, when I live with Jews, I live like a Jew and obey the laws, even though I love my Old Testament, I give up on this pharisaical, scribal, traditional, man-made religion called Judaism. We know that this is a way to think because Paul also says, in my, in just in chapter 1 of Galatians, he says, in my former life of Judaism, to become a Christian was at, its, uh, at least to reject Judaism, not because they were rejecting their Jewishness, but because they saw that to receive the Jewish Messiah, who is the Messiah of all, is to understand what Peter saw in this mind-blowing vision, which is that there is no longer distinction between Jew or Gentile. And as soon as you say that, the Judaistic teachers will say, you're not one of us. You're uncle you eat with them, you feed with them, you sit with them, you go to their house, you receive hospitality, you take the Lord's Supper with them, you're outside of our circles. And Peter said, what of it? <laughs> I'm a Christian now. I don't need Judaism, I have Christ. I don't need the laws, I have God's law. I don't need the, 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 the circumcision party in my corner. I have Jesus, God the Father, and the Holy Spirit affirming through visions over and over again what I've been teaching. So in that sense, he's no longer Judaistic, even though he is a Jew. In fact, he's, he's like the purest Jew. He's born a Jew, and then by faith, he becomes a spiritual Jew in Jesus Christ. Paul's, uh, 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 Paul, for Paul, this was the same in 1 Corinthians 9. He starts talking about how, when I'm among the Jews, I don't, I don't, I don't tick him off. I live like a Jew. When I'm among those under the law, I, I act according to their customs in order to not offend anybody. Remember, he even gets Timothy circumcised. He takes a couple of people into the temple when he comes back to Jerusalem, cuts hair, does a vow, does all that stuff in order to please and, and be a good neighbor, an unoffensive preacher as much as he can. But it's not a law over him. It's a voluntary choice that I will obey these Judaistic laws if I want to. And I will not if I do not need to, because there is no longer, on God's end, any distinction between Jew and Gentile. This is a radical change in understanding. This is explosive for the, new, for the first century church. And that's why we see it come up so much in the New Testament. That's why these guys started such a riot and chased Paul over the Mediterranean era, area in order to dog his steps, turn the churches against him, and require circumcision of them. But Peter stood firm. In Acts chapter 11, the, the circumcision guys got angry at him. And he says, look, this is what happened. We can't deny it. Who am I to stand in the way? He stood firm on that principle for his whole life until he didn't. Two years later. And what happened here is if we can transfer from Caesarea down on the coast of Israel and we go all the way north up to Antioch in then Syria, modern day Turkey. And there is where Paul's Home church and sending church was. This is what uh, starts picking up in chapter 2, verse 11. And we start understanding, why was, why was Peter even there? We don't know. Third largest city in the empire. Enormous thriving church. Uh, their, their teaching apostle left them to go on missions. So I don't know, it seems pretty fitting that Peter would visit, see how it's going. And he had been eating. This is what chapter, verse 12 says. He had been eating with the Gentiles. He had no problem. He was eating the, 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 the new covenant incense, is, is bacon on the barbecue in the morning, and he was, he was living like a Gentile, even though he was a Jew. He loved being a Jew. He believed in Jesus. That's why he's a Jew, spiritually, but he doesn't need to follow the silly laws. He exemplified freedom in the gospel until men came up from Jerusalem. That's what it means when it says from James. James was a pastor in Jerusalem. Now, it doesn't mean that James sent them. They just came claiming James sent us. If James had sent them and had a problem with this, Paul would have gone off at James as well, but he doesn't. Some guys came up from Jerusalem claiming James' authority, and they were annoyed by the whole thing. They were, they were unsettled deeply. They start putting pressure on Peter, saying, James sent us. James, James agrees with us. You're denying Moses. You're dishonoring the law. These false brothers came in. They got very evangelistic about their views. And then verse 12 tells us, Peter drew back and separated himself. Peter got weak. He stood firm, stood firm until he didn't. He crumbled like a deck chair under pressure. He drew back. He says, guys, this Sunday, we're just doing something a little bit different. Would all of the Gentiles please partake of communion over here? And all of the Jews please partake of communion over here? 
afterwards for our fellowship lunch. The Jews will be meeting at Nathanael's house and the Greeks will all be meeting at uh, Titus's house. Thank you. I'll take no more questions. The church just went along with it because he's an apostle. His example is kind of law. Even Barnabas. So this is at some point Paul comes back with Barnabas from the mission trip and Paul's busy, obviously, recounting, maybe writing down all the things that had happened, thinking, praying, fasting. And then he finds out that even Barnabas followed Peter's example and started segregating from Titus, his pal, from the Gentiles. This is Antioch. This is the first mixed-race church in history that sent Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, to the Gentiles. And now they're segregating. And if this had not been sorted out, all of Christianity would have been relegated to a small Jewish denomination. The gospel among the Gentiles will have fallen flat. The messengers would not have kept going. The missionaries would have stopped being sent if this was not sorted out. The lesson here for us, if we take Peter's example, is to realize that the only thing, all that is required for bullies and tyrants to come in and tyrannize the church and twist the church and harm the church's true unity, true theology, and true mission, the only thing you as Christians and I as a preacher have to do is flinch. It's the only thing you have to do. Just have one, one broken vertebrae in your spine. Have a steel of spine on every other topic, but that little topic that they're attacking right there, if you crumble on that, you're crippled. You're out of the way. They, they pounce on it. They chew you up and throw you out. Everybody sees it. Leadership is very different. The only thing that is required for people to tyrannize the church is for the Christians to flinch. It is so important that you do not care about your reputation. Other people's opinions of you do not matter at all. You need to get in the mindset of understanding my reputation is a tool that if intact, I can use for God's glory. And if shattered on the ground, doesn't harm me at all. If you care, if you are emotionally invested in your reputation, I know some of you are upstanding in your community, in your workplace, in your field, in your, in your family. If you care emotionally, if you're emotionally invested in your reputation, you are going to flinch about something. Because before they send the swords, they always send the gossip. Before the devil comes and throws Peter onto the crucifix, he just sent the, the, the false brothers to gossip and say, See, I don't think Peter really cares about the law. I used to think Peter was just like, you know, true Jew right down to his heart and now not so much. Peter started crumbling in the smallest of ways he wasn't ready for the big guns of persecution, apparently. He was back to that, that fear that made him deny Jesus in front of a, a servant girl. You must not care about your reputation at all. I don't care about mine at all. Not for its own worth. Not for its own self. I care about my reputation in the sense that if it's intact, I can get opportunities with other people to preach the gospel. I care about it in the sense that if it's good and honorable, I can give and point glory to God. Anything more than that, it is only an idol to be constantly slayed, drowned, hung, and demolished. The reputation that each of us have is a terrible, terrible God and a horrible, horrible bait towards terrible sins and compromises if we are not balanced the way that we ought to be. I, I, if I can be honest, I do my best work when most people hate me. And I just got my family, the church, and the Bible. That's good enough for me. I usually do my best, most undistracted work then. Maybe it's the same for you. But I want us each to be able to say with Paul in chapter 1, if I was a servant of man, I would, if I was a man pleaser, if I cared what people thought about me ultimately, I just wouldn't have been a slave for Christ. Those are two opposite tracks. Those are two mutually exclusive thought patterns. I wonder what they think about me, and I wonder how I can please Jesus. They're opposite. And if we are not aware of that, you know, we often try, people often say, I would die for Jesus. Okay, will you let your reputation die for Jesus? Before um, Martin Luther was, was dragged to a, a, a physical harm and before he was hunted around the countryside and had to take uh, uh, hiding, in his earlier days, Martin Luther was debating the truths of the Reformation. 
justification by faith alone was in there. Uh, the Pope can err. Uh, the true authority is the word of God. He's saying all these things, and one of his debate opponents called him, get this, mind my language, he called him a Hussite. Burn, right? If you're not up to date with your Bohemian, Pragian political theories from the 16th century, let me fill you in. Hus was, was, was Bohemian. He was from what we might know as the Czech Republic sort of area uh, 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 in Europe who was, who was not looked favorably upon, the, the, that race of people and them politically. And John Huss started teaching all of these Reformation truths about 100 years before the Reformation. And he was killed, obviously. And, and this, this name got popularized amongst all of the academia and the theologians. A Hussite is a troublemaker, a problem stirrer, who's going to end up dead because your views are so heretical and idiotic. Like base level dog brain Hussite. Martin Luther is waxing eloquent about the word of God and all of this. He gets called that one phrase, you're a Hussite. And he's on his knees for days. He's praying to God. He's, is this, am I wrong? <laughs> am I really a fool? Do I believe this? Until eventually he says these fateful words in German. He says, I am a Hussite. He says that publicly. He gets shamed. His reputation torn to shreds. He starts having to flee and run. Before they send the dogs after you, before they beat you up for Jesus, you've got to be willing for your reputation to get beat up for Jesus. The grand persecution doesn't come while we care what they do to our reputation. Jesus said, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I'll add to that. So they persecuted John the Baptist. So they persecuted Jesus. So they persecuted Peter. So they persecuted Paul. So they persecuted Athanasius who stood condramundum against the world. So they persecuted St. Nicholas the theologian who smacked Arius, the guy who didn't believe Jesus was fully God. That's the, that's the blue and red guy on our main graphic theme for, for Galatians. In a big church council, he got thrown in jail for not being gentle, meek, and mild. He was right to do so. So they persecuted Martin Luther, John Knox, John Calvin, and everybody who had a spine since. So they persecute them with words. Don't get lofty visions of dying for Jesus if we won't let our reputation die for Jesus. Peter feared these guys. This is so uh, instructive how, how Paul speaks of them. It sounds like he's just dragging all this dirty laundry out in front of everybody. Paul, uh, Peter rather, was, was, was condemned. He was acting hypocritically. He was a fear. Uh, he was filled with fear and he acted out of hypocrisy. Or the, 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 the word there is play acting. But do you realize how that's a mercy to, Paul, to Peter? That the other, the other alternative, if not hypocrisy... The other alternative is that Peter has changed his theology and is a heretic and a false apostle. What Paul is saying is, I know Peter's theology hasn't changed. I've met with him multiple times. I know Peter's theology hasn't changed. I've heard his preaching. I know his theology hasn't changed. He's an apostle of Jesus. Jesus promised he'd make it to the end. I know his theology hasn't changed, but his spine crumbled. And that's why he comes in in front of everybody, just cuts it out from underneath Peter and says, you have no reputation to me. I will rebuke you in front of you all. You are condemned in your actions, not in your soul, but your conscience is not clean. That's the cleanliness that matters, not bacon or shrimp or whose table you sit at. Your conscience is not clean before the Lord. You are acting hypocritically in front of everybody. And the solution, the, the result of all of this, as Paul said, your actions are out of step with the gospel we preach. And the result of all of this was Peter's repentance. There's no such thing. Reject and throw away any book that tells you, well, there's the Peter's gospel that we see there. They call it the Petrine gospel. And then there's the Pauline gospel, sort of what Paul taught. And from this moment on in history, we start seeing a division. Nonsense. Paul later on writes about Peter in 1 Corinthians 3 and 1 Corinthians 15 in all favorable words. Later on, Peter writes about Paul and calls his writing scripture. He says, man, Paul's written to you guys and all the wisdom that God gave him. Man, some of his stuff is hard to understand. And the wicked people twist what he's saying just like they do the other scripture. Peter and Paul end this debacle completely on the same page. 
They are in full agreement that Jesus died to save anybody and everybody who comes to him by faith and faith alone, regardless of background, circumcision status, Jewish bloodline, regardless of your former religion or the sins that you've committed. Jesus meets us as a needy beggar, a sinner, drowning in mud, needing salvation, with nothing to offer ourselves to him, nothing to, to, to sell us to him. He finds us poor, needy, in the mud, under the clay, or he does not find us at all. And if somebody says, I know other people are under the mud, but I've worked myself up a bit. Oh, I was in the right religion. I did the right laws. I went to Sunday school enough times. I know my questions and answers enough. I, I've read the Bible so many times. I, I haven't sinned like those filthy people have. I, I take up some of the old covenant food laws and I, and I just go by them. Lord God, I'm a little bit higher up in the mud than the others. Jesus goes past you, rejects you, and refuses to save you. He finds you empty-handed or he does not find you at all. He saves you with nothing in your bank account or he does not find you at all. He saves you entirely by himself and that will be the gospel that was preserved triumphantly in this scenario and debacle. This is the gospel that will be preached until the end of the world and Jesus comes back in glory. There is only one gospel. There is only one avenue for you to be saved. There is only one message for the church to preach. So have you believed that message or are you letting it go past? the greatest and grandest offer and promise that could ever be made? Are you just watching that, that gift float past you? Pick it up. Hold it tight. It is the promise of eternal life for you. And if you have it, if you're a Christian, then we stand firm on it, regardless of all opposition and reputation smearing. Let's pray. Father God, we think of Peter. And we think of how exemplary he is in so many ways. We think of how he stood for the faith, how he died for the faith, how he preached Jesus against all of the persecution, but how he's beat up and then praised God for it. And then later, Lord God, yet he was his, his, his momentary fall and backsliding because of cowardice. Lord God, if he can so fall, then we obey Paul's injunction in 1 Corinthians 12 and we we realize that we need to take heed lest we also fall. None of us are above this. None of us are, uh, have had so many great debates or arguments or, or sanctification of the past that we get to just assume we'll be fine with whatever's around the corner. Well, God, we understand that Satan is a wily and cunning serpent. He is a, he is a hungry lion and he is able to trap those who are not watching. Father God, we ask that you keep us watchful. As a church, corporately and congregationally, that we are, we are on the lookout, not, not criticizing and judging one another's hearts, but on the lookout for threats against the gospel and against the gospel of freedom that we are freed up in. We ask, Lord God, that you would make not only each one of us stand firm, but each one of us be confident and have assurance in our heart that we are saved by the merits of Jesus' death in our place and Jesus' life for us and Jesus' resurrection and Jesus' presence in heaven alone. Would you please give assurance to anyone here who is doubting it or anyone here that is allowing sin to stain their conscience so they're finding it difficult to worship you and obey you. Can you please give them a clean conscience through repentance? Father God, would you send the gospel out from us, save many souls and so glorify Jesus in the work of the gospel. We pray all of this in his name. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.